Hello everyone, my name is Joanne Lockwood and I am your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk That's s-double-e, changehappen.co.uk you can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 86, with the title, Voices Uniting for Our Planet. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Nicola Peel. Nicola describes herself as a solutionist, environmentalist, and a speaker. And when I asked Nicola to describe her superpower, she said, being an inspirational speaker, or so she's told, and, and getting shit done. So Nicola, welcome to the show. Hello, Joanne. It's nice to be here. So Nicola, voices uniting for our planet and getting shit done. I've got to hear more about this. Tell me more. Well, it's exactly what we need right now. We need to see change happen. We need to get together and see our differences, not our, you know, sorry, see our similarities, not our differences, because we're really good at finding ways to divide us. You know, this us against them. And we see it so much in the environmental movement, you know, and for me to even say that, you know, I'm an environmentalist. The first thing is, oh, what, you just stand there and protest, do you? It's like, no, I don't. I do a lot more And yeah, and that's what I do. I get shit done. And that's real stuff with my hands, building infrastructures and helping people that most need it. So yeah, that's really, I suppose, a little bit of an intro. So you you picked up on the the stereotype, the the image that people have in the head of an environmentalist, the hippie, the tree huggers that chain themselves to railings. That's the media trope. And media create these tropes to dehumanise, to disenfranchise, to divert attention. So why is the media latching on to environmental concerns as a negative and creating these negative tropes, not amplifying them in a positive light? So I'm a big media hater, if you like. I like to bash the media because they influence everything we do. So why do you think environmentalists have have this bad name, if you like? Well, I suppose we have to, like anything, look behind who owns it, who has to benefit from it. I've got a good example, actually, with National Geographic. And I made a film, Blood of the Amazon, many years ago. I went from the headwaters in Ecuador all the way down the Amazon River and I made a film. And they were interested. But they said to me, yes, but you can't name any names. And the name was Chevron Texaco. They were the ones that created this massive legacy in the Amazon. But they were interested only if I didn't name the name. And, you know, I'd, it never occurred to me. I thought, well, National Geographic, they're all about nature. They love nature. Of course, they're going to be interested in the real story of what's happening in the Amazon. But then I picked up one day one of the magazines and I'd never realised, I'd never really noticed it before, all the advertising from BP and from Shell and Big Oil who advertised in that geo. And so it's like that with most media. If we look behind who owns it, you know, who, who, you know, where's the money? Full of the money. And, um, and that's why really it comes down to the same old story, why they don't want to give us a voice. So it's a, a few American presidents ago, I can't remember which one it was, you, may be, you probably know the story, where the whole concept of climate change was almost like buried as a as a as a non thing, you probably know the story, but we were talking about climate change, the impact of the planet, the global warming, all these things were, were were being scientifically proven and evidenced, until I guess they got lobbied by the oil companies or the 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 the, the, the car manufacturers, whoever that may have been, and then suddenly it all changed, didn't it? And that, and there was a there was a couple of American presidents ago, if I remember rightly. Well, Al Gore was the almost president, vice president, 
And, and, you know, and if you haven't already watched his inconvenient truth, you know, it says what it is on the can. It is an inconvenient truth to everybody. Nobody wants to change. And yeah, he really clearly laid it out. We've known, well, definitely the oil companies have known since the 70s of what they're doing. So it's of their interest and their shareholders' interest to make sure that they can just carry on business as usual. Al Gore, you're right. I remember that now. Yeah. Wasn't that around Ronald Reagan or um, just after Ronald Reagan? It was that. It was around that era, wasn't it? We don't think it was that long ago. I think you might be talking about like the Kennedys back then when he put like solar panels on Uh, the White House and then they were told they had to take the solar panels off of the White House. I mean, this is like way ahead of their time. And, uh, you know, we're still talking about whether or not it's a good idea to get power from the sun. We we are, as you say, we're invested in the status quo and the world is is financed and run by these big global corporations based on oil control and power, isn't it? And even if you look at the dynamics of the Middle East, what's going on in the Middle East right now, a lot of the troubles in the Middle East are all around power dynamics around oil and energy and power. And and when I say power, I mean power in both senses of the word, political power, as well as environment, you know, production of electricity etc it's it's a, it's a tough thing to change isn't it you know especially you know you look at the american car manufacturers have huge great employment um often in the in the least employed areas of the u.s you know the rust belt where poverty and employment is really tough that's where a lot of the manufacturing is and making these kind of changes in advancement isn't isn't good for politics is it no, definitely not. I mean, it's not good for a lot of things. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I kind of wonder if we need to change our, our names. You know, we, we call ourselves still Homo sapiens, which was, you know, sapiens wise. And we don't seem to be acting very wisely at the moment. I, th- I think we could be, you know, it's almost like, how about we change our name to Homo Petroleus? Because Petroleus. our whole reality revolves around the stuff. And, you know, absolutely everything we do, you know, we get up in the morning and, you know, we open our plastic you know, thing of milk and then we drive to work and then, you know, absolutely everything we are surrounded by is made from it. So to change the industry means changing everything. And that's just inconvenient. People don't want to change. It's so much easier to jump in your own car, fly away on holiday and just keep on living the good life. And this tiny minority of us that are able to do that are not prepared to stop just because, you know, a few radicals are saying that it's not good and we shouldn't be doing it. You know, there's not the evidence of why if everyone else is doing it, then why should I stop? Which perpetuates the problem of mostly it's all doom and gloom. And, oh, if you become an environmentalist, you're going to be running around in a tatty old shirt and, uh, you know, like flip flops or something. Instead of thinking, which is where I come into it, I don't want to talk about the doom and the gloom and climate change and the woes of how bad it really is. There's enough people talking about that. I want to talk about what the future could look like if we move towards the ecological age where we actually work with nature rather than against it, then what would the world look like? Talk about ages like that, and again, I think I saw something on the news recently that we've entered a new age of the planet because you can you will now be able to detect this era in the striations of the Earth's core and crust when you do things. So they, that's how they, you know, the Jurassic, Mesoteric, all these kind of layers are built up. We've now got one that shows our environmental impact as an age, haven't we? Yep, the Anthropocene. Yeah, that's it. It is the age of the human. You cannot get away from our impact. You know, whatever corner of the globe, you can be as remote as you like in the Arctic, in the middle of the Amazon. You you cannot get away from microparticles of plastic. You cannot get away from contamination, which is what the human legacy is right now. Oh, you talk about microparticles. I mean, it's... It's in toothpaste, isn't it? It's the little tiny abrasive things in toothpaste, the little plastic balls that we're, we're cleaning our teeth. Inevitably, we're ingesting them, being part of our, in all of our internal organs. 
everything we eat has got micro particles of plastic in it. We're kind of we're we're going to be oxygen, nitrogen, water, and plastic before too long, aren't we? Being born with plastic in us. Yeah, I mean, it, you you kind of remind me there of the the spaceship analogy where the Earth it's a bit like a spaceship flying through the universe, and and we're all these passengers on the spaceship, and all the red lights are flashing, water, oxygen, waste, biodiversity loss. The lights are all flashing and we're just hurling through space, actually not taking any notice whatsoever of these flashing lights. And the, well, actually, what does this mean for humans if we carry on like this? And, you know, I've spent 20 years working alongside indigenous people in the Amazon. And I spend time with them where they have so little, but they're always laughing and they're always happy. It's very, very rare to see anybody depressed. And when I come back to the UK and, you know, I hear about the amount of depression and suicide, teenage suicides, and I look at these two realities where I've had one foot in each reality and the difference it's just incredible. And it just reminds me over and over again that money does not buy happiness. All the stuff that we continually fill our lives with, thinking that it's going to somehow bring us happiness, it just won't. And what we desperately need is to reconnect with that which is real, the world around us. Is it because we haven't managed to sell sell the problem, sell the pain to people? I mean... Is it, I mean, we, we see David Attenborough, we see Blue Planet, we see all these programs, and we see the impact of, of us as humans on animals. We see turtles covered in plastic. We see you cut open birds and things. You see their stomachs full of fishing nets and plastics. And we're seeing that impact on animals or on creatures. We look at the... We look at the rivers, the, the water companies pumping untreated sewage into our rivers. We see the environmental impact of it being covered in algae, the fish diet. It, was, it took almost a generation to clean the Thames up, didn't it, for all the pollution that was in the Thames. So we know what, what when we impact water, how it kills off animals and creatures that live in the water. We can see that impact all the time. Is it because we don't see enough people dying in the air because the air looks clean we don't detect dirtiness in the air We're, probably our noses our mouths our lungs are probably used to filtering it and accepting the taste of air as it is um we've got people complaining about the ULES in london you know ULES is sort of like let's get let's get this down to 20 miles now let's get let's have a ULES zone people go oh that's going to make me go later for work and what about all the children are dying we, we talk about lead in petrol we got unleaded we got lead in paint we got rid of that Sorry, I'm talking too much. Go, oh, you're the expert. Well, I mean, you're just totally there. You know, it's very, very true. If we could see the CO2 coming out of exhausts, if we could see carbon dioxide, you know, the trails of black left by airplanes, the trails of black left by, you know, all the, you know, the shipping and the transport, but we can't see it. It's invisible. So that would be different if we could see this lingering. And there are actually cameras which are fascinating where you can actually witness um, what air pollution looks like, you know, visually. So that is part of it, is that, yes, we can't see it. So we kind of know about it. There's been loads of information. People are in a state of denial. They don't want to know. It's too uncomfortable. So the imagery that we see of, you know, floods and you know, everything, which is just, you know, these atrocities that are happening around the world, but still in England, for example, we're in a little bubble here. We're in Goldilocks land. Nothing too bad has happened to us. We can just carry on. Hey, it might be nice climate change because it might get a bit hotter in the summer. So, you know, we can come up with all sorts of ideas about why we don't really want to talk about it. And, and then, you know, it's this other divide. It's getting bigger. Do you, are you a climate denier or are you, you know, a Greta Thunberg follower and you know, it's actually really becoming very toxic, the world of on what side do you stand? So often when I'm, you know, people ask me, oh, do you speak about climate change? I said, no, I don't. I'm a solutionist. 
There's enough people showing you the graphs and talking about climate change. I want to talk about the solutions. I want to talk about what we can do rather than what we can't do because there's not enough airtime given to that. We don't have a vision of the future. Most people can't see it. And if we can't see it, we're never going to get there. So, yeah, I think that's part of, you know, what my part in the jigsaw is. It's, it's showing, painting that real realistic picture, isn't it? And you say it's the solutions around not just telling us what the pain point is, it's, 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 it's giving us the ideas and the way out of those. If you do nothing, this is the picture. If you do something, this is the picture. If you do lots, this is the picture. I, I think you're right. Seeing pictures of polar bears having their environment shrunk or the fact that you've got seals who used to live on these ice flows now are more vulnerable to killer whales because their ice flows are dissolving too quickly. Uh, you see all these pictures of animals. It's a, it's so detached from reality because it's not in your back garden. Um, it, it's, it's a tough... I mean, was it recently the Rishi Sunak and co decided to put back our pledge on electric vehicles by another five years saying it was too tricky to get infrastructure in place? Um I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but if, if unless, you're, unless you're committed to a path, it's always going to be difficult. Absolutely. And and there is no silver bullet. And, you know, even the idea of, you know, all going on to electric vehicles, that's not what we want either. We fundamentally need system change. And that means public transport. It means car sharing. It, you know, it, the idea of like everyone giving up their fossil fuel car and getting an electric car, it's just never going to happen. A, we don't have the resources to mine what is needed to build an entire fleet of electric vehicles. But we can learn from other countries. You know, I've spent a lot of time in South America where it's all minibus. Everyone gets around by minibus. We have these massive buses that quite often drive around empty. But maybe that's not necessary. Maybe we need to look at our whole infrastructure of how we get around. You know, we've been talking about carpooling for a long time. Nobody does it, though. So, you know, how do we create the change? We know what's needed. So, you know, how do we get from where we are to where we need to go? And, you know, is it enough for people to, to see the visuals? And, and I think when you have your own firsthand experience and you see it yourself, which I suppose really made it even more real for myself when I first started in 2000 in the Amazon, I didn't know that there was these massive oil spills in the Amazon, but it wasn't just seeing the rivers running black and the effects on the creatures. It was when I started to see the children that were covered in skin lesions and you know, the highest rate of childhood leukemia in the world is the children in the Amazon. Now, why don't we know about that? Because it's much easier to talk about, you know, oh, yeah, nature's being contaminated. Yeah, it's the oceans or it's the forest. But the people, it's a different thing. If people were to see what I see of how sick the people are that live in the forest because they drink the water, then you say, well, hang on, this isn't right. The, why are all these kids in the middle of the Amazon so sick Oh, so I can just drive to Texaco and go and fill my car up. How does that make us feel? So that's where I feel like we need to actually feel what's happening in a real way. This isn't just some fantasy. You know, it's real life. It's actually happening right now. I think maybe if you haven't seen it, you can't really understand it. But it still doesn't impact me. And I don't feel that pain, you know, no, no pain, no change sort of thing. How, how do I, uh, maybe, maybe as an individual, I'm worried about, well, not worried, but I'm, what difference can I make if I, if I put this, this plastic bottle in the recycling or put it in the general waste, what's the impact? It makes no difference to any, no one's going to care. No one's going to notice. It'll just go into landfill. Who cares? So how can I, how can I understand the personal nature of this? so that I can be on board with it, you know, rather than just the theory. Uh, how can I be personally, take personal responsibility for change? How can I do that? Well, I do it because it makes me feel good. <laughs> so, you know, whether we do it from a self-centered, doing the right thing actually gives you better mental health. 
And, you know, we can come at it from many, many angles. And, and I hear this all the time. I'm just one person. Whatever I do is not really going to make a difference. It's up to the government. It's up to the corporations. It's up to the politicians. We're very good at pe pointing the finger to everybody else apart from ourselves. So, you know, what would happen if we, you know, started the, the, the bottom rung is just putting the recycling in the right bin. There was recently, I was chatting to a young Japanese girl and she said, I didn't know that England was a third world country. And I said, well, why do you say that? She said, well, people here still don't know how to recycle. And I thought, yep, that's right. If you lived in Japan, you would peel the label off of your wine bottle and put the label into paper. You'd put the bottle into glass and you take the lid off and you put it into metal. They recycle everything. They, they have very little waste. They have a very intelligent system, which means that by really separating and recycling, it costs less in the end. So it's not even just the environmental impacts. Financially, economically, it makes sense. So, you know, we start on the rung of like that personal radical responsibility of what you, there is no such thing as a way. This idea of I'm going to throw it away. You know, wh where is that? We just move it from our house to somewhere else. So, you know, then what the, the bigger picture of like systems change. And, you know, for me, it's everything. It, it's not just, you know, kind of individual. It's social, it's economical, it's political and it's legal. So we can pull the strands of each of those. I'm sorry, I'm just chuckling under my breath here about when you said, when you throw something away, there is no away. And I had this vision of tidying up my, my cupboards. What you end up doing is just rearranging stuff and putting the stuff you already had somewhere else. So away is actually somewhere else. It's not actually away, away anywhere. It's just different. You just moved it from place A to place B. You've changed its, its position in time and space, not its actual status. Absolutely. So, yeah, the time where we move it, we don't see it because it's not in England because we haven't got any landfill sites anymore. So we just ship it away to another country and have no responsibility or no idea. If you if you ask most people, hey, when you chuck your stuff in the rubbish bin, where does it go? Um, we just don't know. I mean, we saw in the recent uh, by-elections that the ULES in London was a, became a political wedge issue where one party decided that they were going to campaign against it and get their person elected, which turned out to be true, whether it was over the ULES. Is it becoming a political football? Um, the more left-leaning you are, the more environmental you are, the more right-leaning, leaning, the more capitalist you are, the more you, you're, more like, you're less likely to care about the environment. Is, is that kind of a, a truism or is that kind of a generalisation? I think it is true, sadly. It seems to be where we're going and it seems to be getting worse. And, you know, I mean, the, the rise of, you know, fascism in this country as well, not and the rise of climate denial. So, you know, I've been confronted at a few events where I've been speaking at with people that are absolutely, totally in denial of climate change. And I say, well, OK, if you don't agree with the maps and the graphs and what the scientists say, do you agree that there is air pollution in cities? Do you agree that there's rubbish and plastic in the oceans? Do you agree that we're losing biodiversity at an unprecedented state? We are actually in the sixth mass extinction right now. We're causing it this time. So we know that that's happening. And, and so I'm trying to find the things which actually unite us, the things that we agree upon rather than what we don't agree. And at the moment, because it's also siloed, You've got people that do amazing work socially with people that have absolutely nothing to do with the environment. And then you've got environmentalists that have nothing to do with like social projects. But the Vesica Pisces, the bit in the middle, which is, well, we've got to remember that humans are nature. We're not separate from it. You know, we're not as important as a worm. You know, I mean, the Earth really needs worms. It doesn't need humans. But we are just another species on this planet. And I think sometimes we have to remember that. 
because we seem to think that there's us and then there's nature like it's like it's something different i mean i suppose historically in the food chain we're just food aren't we in the middle of big teeth predators and worms you know worms at the bottom of the food chain eating us or um a big a big dinosaur if you want um big predator eating us so without our intelligence if you like or lack of intelligence however you want to describe it we are just food for somebody else and so yeah in the scale of things that's how we evolved we have we're food that evolved to run away and be more clever about running away so yeah and then we became the predator ourselves but we're um, not the most of intelligent of species most of them don't shit in their own nests <laughs> no so no no most of them know the difference don't they no you're right God, blimey, I had to destroy my thread. Um, yeah, um, someone said to me, uh, and it, it never occurred to me that when I was younger, and, I, and I'm in my late 50s now, I remember driving my car, and you get out of the car, and your car has been massively hit by flies and bugs, and you're always wiping something off you, especially at night. You come back, and your car will be plastered with bugs. Now... I can't think of hardly ever I get a splat on the windscreen driving down country lanes or even motorways. I don't get hit. And that's a sign that we're losing our biodiversity in terms of insects and bugs because of pesticides and a lack of vegetation, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And I think that that's the advantage that us of a certain age know that. We, we witnessed it. We actually saw that. Whereas, you know, the last couple of generations, they never saw insects. So they don't know that they've lost them because they didn't have that experience soon it will all be textbook you know it's like you know well you know it's like gosh to think that those creatures that we grew up with you know the sound of the cuckoo in spring may soon be lost forever you know the amazing song of the nightingale there's that many people say we don't know how many very few years we've got left of them we are absolutely on the brink of so many species just disappearing forever. And you know, extinction is forever. We can't get them back. So that's why now there is such a need and a push to do whatever we can. And, and if that's like in our backyard, back garden, local playing field, just leaving an area to the wildlife, you know, leaving that messy pile of broken down stones and bit branches and you know that's what nature needs there's nowhere for it to hide because humans have become so tidy we've cleaned everything up and there's just no habitat left for them so you know that's why the rewilding you know which is also massively controversial but thankfully it is gaining momentum of people realizing that hey what does wildlife need before we lose it for good what does it need it needs habitat. It needs some messy spaces just left for nature. And for humans to step away and give some space back to the rest of the natural world. Yeah. I mean, was it Jeremy Vine hosted something on Radio 2 a few months ago? Isn't, isn't May designated the don't, don't trim your roadside back the verge and let you go wild in May or something? No, he, he hosted Mo this. May. No Mo May, that's it. No Mo May, and he hosted this debate on this on his show on Radio Two, and people were complaining about it being the council trying to save money or to try and do this, and it, it was becoming dangerous that all these plants were growing everywhere. And I, I was just thinking, really, this is this is really what we're arguing about here: is people's jobs worth backyard? I want I want to see neat trimmed banks. It can't be make that much difference to the wildlife. That's the mentality we're fighting against, isn't it? Absolutely. But most people like birds. And I think if you say to people, well, hey, how would you feel if we didn't have any birds left? Because they didn't have any insects. And so therefore they had nothing to eat. And we come back to the seminal book, Silent Spring. That what happens if we have no birds, it becomes silent are we better or worse off as humans? Is that okay for us to be without other species mm. because of our need to have, you know, tidiness and lawns that we're not prepared 
to give pieces of land over. And, you know, and everyone can do that. You know, it's like, that's what we need is more people saying, well, hey, okay, I don't have a garden, but we've got a park. How about going out a conversation with somebody and saying, hey, what about we just give a little tiny bit over? Yeah, put a sign up, grow some more wildflowers. They, it can be absolutely beautiful. And that's actually one of the really shocking thing that comes from Nomo May, that yes, it has saved the council money, which is a good thing. But also people have never seen what happens if you let your lawn grow. All of a sudden it's covered in flowers and then it's covered in bees and butterflies. It's like, wow, that's what happens when we just let things go to flower. And if you leave it to go to seed, then you get a whole other load of creatures coming through to feast on that too. So, you know, it's these little actions that really can make a huge difference. Yeah, we get these wild, wildflower seed bombs and we've got a load of planters. We just fill these planters up with seed bombs. And the thing we like about it is you've got no idea what's going to come up and what colour of it's going to look like. So we've got all these kind of different sort of flowers coming up everywhere. Some grow, some don't. Some work, some don't. And it's we, we love doing it. And uh, I'm not saying it's we did it deliberately to be environmental. We just did it deliberately because we quite just wanted to have that that, that just surprise of what grows and uh, we like those and uh, we definitely noticed we, we lived in the rural Chichester area until recently and we we saw a lot of when we started taking care of the garden with all these seed with all these planters and things with all these wildflowers we saw a huge increase in bees and wasps and flying things and also smaller insects we saw a huge increase in sparrows and tits and we even had some wrens. We even had peasants and partridges come in the back garden. And we, we, so we noticed a stark difference from the, the day we moved in and the first six months to the last 12, 18 months we were there. Just by our influence on our space, we increased the amount of birds and different different species and the insects and everything else. Okay, we got a few rats. We had two of the rats because we were too many nuts and seeds everywhere. Um but yeah, we 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 could see a, a marked difference between when we moved in and when we moved out. The the diversity of the uh, the the insects and the birds. So yeah, and we're trying to encourage it where we live now. Which which uh, is back to what we've just said that you know don't ever anyone think that one person can't make a difference. If we're showing this on a small scale, you now what about large landowners? That start to actually give a little bit more than just a tiny margin around the edge. You know, the hedges that got taken out, we need to be putting them back. We need to be giving a lot wider edges around the fields. You know, we start with the edge and we just kind of work inwards. But then we've also got a problem with this kind of idea that tree planting is going to save the world. And this massive tree planting where often it can be the wrong tree in the wrong place. People don't really understand what they're doing. And in you know, my one of my greatest passions of what drives my work at the moment is looking for ways to protect the forest that's already standing. You know, as, as we're having this very conversation, you know, there's probably, let's just say, 100,000 trees being planted, 100,000 little saplings putting the ground. And right now, there's also 100,000 ancient trees being cut down. You cannot just allow ancient forests to be cut and think oh but don't worry we'll just plant a few trees instead it doesn't work you can never bring back biodiversity you can never bring back a primary forest so that i was very lucky because i got locked down in probably the most biodiverse place on the planet um where it was a place called los cedros biological reserve in the cloud forests of ecuador i'd gone to write a report I said I'd be there for five days. I was there for five and a half months. And being locked down in a place where I could swim in the river and stand in the waterfall and drink the water. How many people ever get the experience to swim in a river that you can drink? It just doesn't happen. But we have to keep that vision. We need to bring that back. And what is going on right now with massive companies just not being held responsible for the amount of shit, the amount of sewage that goes into our rivers, they pay their fine and then they just carry on. 
We have environmental laws, but they only just pay for a fine. Instead, we need to change it so it's criminal law. We need to change it so we give nature rights. We need to absolutely just clean up our act. Yeah, what you're saying there about the the new planting, and it just reminded me as you're talking about the sycamore gap, just to see that the age of that tree and no one alive today will ever see a tree like that again in that in that location. It's hundreds of years to to establish, and just north of Portsmouth, there's a, a it's called Queen, Queen Elizabeth Country Park, and the history of that is it, it was planted in the era around Henry VIII to as a as a as a source of wood for building his fleet of ships near Portsmouth. Um, so you look at that forest today or the park today. And the, they're quite, it's very mature, but that's how many, how, that's six, seven hundred years of growth. So if you are pruning it down, you're putting saplings in today, it's going to take four or five hundred years to become an established integral part of the of the ecosystem, not a few years. And there's another place called Kingly Vale, and it's got the yew tree forest, and that must be all around um, planting for longbows and things the yew and yeah some other ancient sort of things and it's the highest density i think of yew trees anywhere that i know of anyway but yeah it's very old and ancient uh, yeah ancient yew trees yeah which shh, don't tell anybody and uh, those are those are those trees have got huge huge trunks yeah massive trunks and the the, the all the branches are like a, a haunted forest and it's really really quite a powerful in there so yeah, yeah, you can't just plant that and expect it to grow overnight. All our churches have massive yew trees in them, and they've been there since what the sixteen, seventeen hundreds, and that's three or four hundred years again. So well, not right. Just going on a tree planting speeds, um, it's not going to solve anything, is it? Most most yew trees in most churchyards are over two thousand years old because they were originally pagan sites, and the church built to squash the pagan religion. They pl- they built their churches where it was already a place of worship, which is why that you find ancient yews there. Most of them have been carbon dated uh, over two thousand. In fact, the little um, there's a little tree just up the road here in Coldwatham in West Sussex, and that tree was carbon dated at three thousand two hundred years old, uh, one of the oldest trees in the country. But yeah, many of the trees are over two thousand. So you know the fact that we are. Th- Still cutting down the redwoods, these ancient redwoods in America, again, over 2,000 years old. There's some, they say between 1% and 3% are left, and they're still cutting them down. What I witness in the Amazon, you know, these giant trees, anybody that watched Avatar will remember the great tree, which is based on the Amazonian sabre tree. And now, you know, these huge trees being cut down. And what one of those massive, massive saber trees, they will get five hundred dollars in planks of wood. That's what poverty does, though. It will drive them to cut the trees down. Firstly, to sell a few planks, and then to be able to clear it to put cattle on or to put soy, which will then be, you know, fed to chickens, sold in Tesco. Yeah, this is a direct relation right now. I have indigenous friends telling me that their forest, their forest is being cut down and for soy. And there's a direct chain going all the way to Tesco. And I actually brought this up. I was recently at a big conference called Anthropy. And there was somebody from Tesco speaking there from Head of Sustainability. And I said, you know, why is this still happening? Why people don't know when they go in to buy something, they don't know that what they're buying is causing destruction in the Amazon. We've got to start becoming really aware and pressurizing these big businesses to do the right thing, which is where I definitely want to give a plug to the great work of Ethical Consumer, which they have a fantastic book, a magazine online. And if anybody wants to know who these businesses are and what they do, that this organization have done great research so that we can become responsible consumers in that which we buy. I mean, I just think about you talk about supermarkets there and the chains. They keep telling me 
that they're always they're cutting prices. They're driving down this. They're driving down that. They're telling me that I have to have perfect apples and perfect fruit because that's what the consumer demands. That's just marketing bull, isn't it? The consumer's not demanding anything. They're telling us what we should demand and then fulfilling that. That that, that they're giving us the rally cry and then following through, and saying you've told us this, so we're doing it. So I didn't ask for round apples. I asked for an apple that I can eat. I was quite happy eating them off the tree in my parents' garden, cutting out the maggot and uh, and eating the rest of the apple. We, we sit there at Christmas with as, a, as a, a bunch of kids, cutting the apples up and cutting the maggots out, and just chewing on the, on the on these apples. That was okay for us as a family. What's changed? It, there's a friend of mine. She said something which I thought was quite apt. She said he shouldn't say organic carrots. Those ones should just say carrots, and the other ones should say chemical carrots. Yes, I like that. It's shifting the language, isn't it? And I, I, I as, a, as an EDI professional, I, I've, I, I'm well aware that we we label things with adjectives, but we don't tend to label the default, do we? We always label the non-default. So people want the default. So you say organic carrot, that makes it sound like it's not the norm. Yes, if we, exactly. say, if we had uh, if we had artificially grown or artificially fertilized carrots or carrots we're going to go oh carrot sounds nicer than this other description and it is a lot of it is the wording and uh-huh. being able to to know you know what's going on education is a big part of it but education by itself doesn't make people act alone I think that's the first seed. And when I'm giving a talk, you know, I can speak to a few hundred people and I'm kind of throwing out these seeds. Many will land on barren land and people won't take any notice. But then I feel like somebody else will say something which will water that seed. And finally, that person will be like, oh, oh, actually, maybe I can do something. And my favorite saying is thanks to the singer Joan Baez. Action is the antidote to dispel. And I really think that is such a brilliant saying. People say to me, how, you know, I've been 25 years, I've been banging on about the environment. How come you're not totally in despair at the state of the world? Well, that wouldn't help me and it wouldn't help anybody else that I was communicating with. And the only thing that keeps me from despair is the action that I take and all the projects that I've coordinated around the world to make a positive difference. Then leaves me thinking, well, hey, if I die tomorrow, at least I can think, well, shit, I did my best. I did leave the world in a better place than when I found it. And if we could all have that feeling, then we would all, NIMBY is a really good thing. We've made out NIMBY is something bad, not in my backyard. If we all look after our backyards, the world will be a better place. Wow, I love that. I I, I tend to use the, the concept of plus one. I don't have to have a thousand. If I just one more than I had last year, one more, change one person. You know, and I, I yeah, using a COVID analogy, get the get the R rate, get the infection rate of inclusion and diversity, get the R rate of environmentalism. If we can if we can infect people with a bug to uh, to th- care about the planet, care about each other, and that we got that number to two before long, the whole planet would be infected with thinking about the planet, wouldn't they? So, but we're just lazy, though, aren't we? I mean, you look to what you look at the reaction we had as a species in the UK to COVID. We were in denial. There's conspiracies. It wasn't until you actually saw yourself dying or someone you loved dying that the penny dropped. But most people go. Because we're, we're we're lazy. Human beings are very lazy. We look we look to try and do the least we can. It's, it's biological. We don't want, we conserve energy. If we don't have to do it, we won't do it. So how do we how do we stop people just being acting to programming, which is being lazy? Well, I think it comes back again to mental health. So, yes, if you go to a lot of countries, yes, they can do a lot of lying around in their hammocks, which we would cause call lazy. But there's also a lot of being busy, you know, actually finding food and, you know, doing what needs to do to be human, to actually survive. But because we're in a reality 
where people don't have to hunt and gather. They don't have to go and find food. They have to just walk down to the shops. There's so much time and people say, oh, I don't have time. But if we look at how many hours per day people spend on social media, if we look at how many hours people spend a day on their phones, and then at the end of the day, you say, well, what have you achieved? What have you done? Time goes by. And then people have got, oh, you know, feeling down about it. And then when you realize that you get active, and a really good example is people going along to community gardens. The benefits of going along and finding a community garden is that, hey, all of a sudden there's all these other people. So you get a social life. You get to grow some food. You, you know, actually start to make a positive difference within a group of people locally to you. There are so many benefits for actually doing the right thing. But it's a bit like we have to lead the people to show them what's possible. If you've never even heard of such a thing as a community garden, how do you know where to start? So part that's part of my work is as a speaker to talk about all the positive things that we can do and joining together so that we can all kind of like act faster and move faster together and have a good time while we're doing it. Is it does it need a generational shift though? I mean, we look at our evolution as a culture from a boozy pub-based culture to a coffee shop culture has taken a generation. You know, you know, I go back to my teens and twenties. The pub was it. There was no coffee shops. It was alcohol fueled. And obviously that had social issues as well surrounding it. And the government at the time or over over time removed the, some of the licensing laws. It became easier to get a drink. You weren't having to finish everything in the last five minutes. You could drink on a Saturday all afternoon if you wanted to. And the impact was people didn't feel that drinking was a, was a resource that was limited anymore. Therefore, they didn't have to rush it. They could just dip in and dip out whenever they wanted. At the same time, the coffee shop culture kicked off and we became a bit more Parisian, if you like, in our in our high streets. And now you look at the generation today, is drinking has changed completely. You, you may drink more at home or for mental health reasons, but fundamentally it's no longer as ingrained in our psyche and culture as, as it used to be. And you look at other things, smoking, you know, tobacco, it's taken three or four generations and, you know, now talking about making it effectively illegal by 2030 or, you know, trying to find really radical ways like New Zealand of, of, of banning it. These are generational changes of attitude. And I, I would dare say that my daughter and my son, who are in their late 20s, early 30s, are probably just on the, the early curve of caring about the environment even more than I do. So their children, the Gen Alphas, and the, the, the younger Gen Zs, are the, are the ones that are really going to be in that era, like Greta Thunberg and her cohort. That's where we're going to see the real change or... Can we wait that long, though? I don't think we can. I think that that's what everybody kind of feels like. Oh, well, we can't do anything. And then, you know, the younger generation is saying, well, hey, you lot caused the problem. You need to sort it out. It's your generation that has caused this problem. Why should we sort it out? So it can go backwards and forwards. And, you know, I meet some great young, you know, youngsters that really care. But then what happens is because they don't have the support that is required you know, you get this like environmental anxiety in the youth, which is just so terrible that, you know, none of their mates want to get involved. And, you know, it's not the cool club to be in, which is what is such a shame. It's just like, you know, it's cool to be smoking you know, a single use vape. There's absolutely no understanding. This is about as far as bad as it's got from, you know, where we used to drink beer and brew up our own hops and make our own homebrew to now we've got this gadget which is you know using plastic and lithium once it's then thrown away and lots of them are ending up in the rivers where lithium is highly contaminating to the rivers so we can just use that once it shouldn't be allowed i mean that kind of thing it's just become extreme in this consumption consumerism capitalism they sell, so we will keep selling them, and it doesn't matter about the state of the environment. So it just shows how far we've gone to start to rein it back in, to realise and see those impacts. And who's responsible? Is it the consumer? Is it the person that buys the vape? Or is it the the shop that sells it? 
or is it the manufacturer that actually creates it in the first place? It's like every level is responsible for creating, you know, this world that we're living in right now of just mine it, make it, dump it, mine it, make it, dump it. And we just don't see where it came from or where it's going to. I am not going to change on my own if I feel I'm swimming against the tide of everybody else. You know, again, we're lazy. We could tend to go with the flow, peer pressure. We go the easy route. Everyone's telling me in the advertising and the media what's going on. I'm being bombarded with this day in, day out. This is the right thing to do. We, we care about you. We, we're, we're making these products. Marketing is all around playing with biases and persuading you that you want something. And people are developing these products. As you say, the single-use vapes, they're different colors. They've got these fancy flavors and fruity names, and they sound really attractive to young people. No wonder they're interested in them. I, I, people aren't going to change until the government, and you know, you, you can't blame, I know you can't blame everything on the government, but you have to set, set the culture of the, of the country. And if you look at the countries around the world that are making positive change, I dare say a lot of this has been set by the tone of the people who are setting the tone for everybody. And then they're putting pressure on big businesses and those big businesses that are either incentivized or they put them pressure to do the right thing to pass that down. And then people at the bottom go, oh, I'm now being told to do this. I will do that now. So almost like have to reprogram people. And I, I, I do despair, you know, we look at the return to office working and instead of you know, hybrid remote working, I do, I do wonder if a lot of that is driven by government peer pressure to big organizations to get people back into the inner cities to keep the coffee shop to keep the employment to keep the transport system alive keep london underground alive because it doesn't make sense really who where's the, where's the incentive to get people traveling and commuting covid we proved you didn't need to and yes they see uh, mentoring peer-to-peer -peer learning cooler chats all this kind of stuff it, it nurtures people i'm not saying there aren't those benefits but the answer shouldn't be drive to work there must be another solution to those problems other than drive to work or get the train and park and get your car out and I, and I wonder what the motives are and who's driving all this and it says to me that there's some it's not for the right reasons it's for other reasons if you like absolutely let's just have a look at who's running you know the country running the world at the moment you know who are the big players and what are their interests you know, their interest is not in the good of humanity or the good of, you know, the world. It's about making money. And it's this revolving doors of who's in government and what positions that they're in. They have absolutely, you know, clearly shown that we have no leadership at all in this country. So if it's not going to come from above, is it going to come from below? How has change happened before? You know, there has been, you know, these uprisings that have come from a grassroots level of people pushing their their politicians, their, their businesses into doing the right thing. But I think if we wait for the governments to do anything, then we're going to be waiting way too long. And what we really need is to be able to have a vision. If we think, hey, what's the world going to look like in 50 years time? Are we all going to be still driving around in cars? Are we all going to still be doing the same thing? Will the world, nothing ever stays the same. So I think it's really important for us all to have a vision of the future. What do you want it to look like? And, and if you want it to look a certain way, how are we going to get there from where we are right now to where we need to go? Yeah, and it's, it's destination planning, isn't it? You've got to start somewhere. You've got to start... I'm a great believer in transformational leadership where you paint the picture and you say, this is what fantastic looks like. This is what, what you can achieve rather than the, the carrot and stick and the pushing people towards a destination. You just create attraction to that positive vision. And I don't think we're doing enough of that. This is, this is how you could, um, this is how it could be if we all did this. And, but there has to be, a, there has to be a real gravitational pull towards that destination. I, I don't want to be worse off. I don't want to be inconvenienced. I don't want to have to walk everywhere if it's raining. Um, if, if suddenly a bus arrived at the end of my road every day, every half an hour, and went to where I wanted to go, i.e. The, the train station, I would get on that bus and I would go to the train station. But suddenly it only arrives three times a day 
once once for the early morning commuters at six o'clock in the morning and once at seven o'clock at night but I, if i want to get the bus to the station at two or three in the afternoon i can't so it's the issue is we're not investing in enough infrastructure this chicken and egg thing again um hs2 i'm not saying it was the great best idea in the world but it got it should have got cars off the road should have got lorries off the road it and as i say i'm not i'm not i'm not I don't know if it's the perfect answer, that kind of infrastructure, but I've seen MRT, local transport systems, canned. I've seen bus stops closed. You know, we look at the train, the rail network of old. Then the car came along and all the railways, all the little branch lines got cut out. We've we, we got to try and reinvest in the infrastructure. We've got whole new town developments that are 20 miles from the nearest railway station and no bus infrastructure. This is the crazy stuff we're doing. Our town planning, our city planning, has got to reflect a, a better way of connecting us, especially as we keep encouraging people to go back to work. Go out to the... um, so uh, I don't know. I'm I'm as frustrated as you, I guess. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> we can see. You know, we can see what needs to happen. I think that that's a starting point. Is that we have to start having the conversation. We need to start talking about what's going on. We need to name it. What's going on? You know. What, what's happening on this planet you know it is an eco side we need to use that word that's the truth that's what's going on and um we're still not taking it seriously and i think that a lot of that is because say people haven't seen it with their own eyes they haven't smelt it they haven't actually seen that whole reality of how bad it can be these massive open pit mines around the world which you know that's what it takes to have that bait you need to have these huge, great, big mining realities going on, causing vast amounts of contamination so that we can go and buy something without thinking what the materials are it's made from. So I think, yeah, there's, there's so many, many parts of this equation. And uh, I think we just need to do anything, anything yeah. at all is better than nothing. And if that means recycling one more bottle, finding out who you're banking with, you know, making those changes that actually drives a society, which is, say, we said before, you know, it is political. Has, has, you know, how many people speak to their MPs? Very, very few. And the MPs often say, oh, well, my constituents aren't really interested in what's happening in the environment. So I just do what my constituents want. Well, if that's the truth, we need more people engaging with whoever their MP is to say, hey, what can we do and what are you planning to do? So that push in power that we have as an individual to pressurize those people who are supposed to be representing us to look at how we can you know, unite socially with other groups and say, hey, how can we all work together? That's what is needed. As nature communicates through the underground mycelial network, which connects every tree in the forest, we need to start doing the same. As humans, we need to start connecting a lot more so that we can all work together and amplify each other's voices and concerns. And that way, you know, it feels like we will have a much better chance. Amazing. And on that note, I've, I could talk to you all night. I mean, we've been chatting for an hour and a half already uh, before in the green room and I've no doubt we'll bump into each other again soon and we'll have another conversation. So, no, Nicola amazing conversation thank you um i'm sure everyone listening would love to get in contact with you so what's the best way of getting in contact with you your website linkedin how do we find yeah. out more yeah my website is my name nicolapeel.com that's got my social media tags on it i also do the solutions podcast and i through patreon so anybody that wants to hear me interviewing interesting people every month then look for Patreon slash Solutionist. Amazing. I'm going to go and check that out in a minute. That's brilliant. So, Nicola, thank you so much for your time. And for you, the listener, that's uh, got all the way to the end, and I'm really, really proud of you for making it this far. Thank you for tuning and listening. Um, if you're not already subscribed, please subscribe to keep updates on future episodes of the Inclusion Bites podcast. That's B-I-T-E-S. You can find us on pod uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Whatever platform you use, we're there. So please do look us up. As you can imagine, I have a number of other amazing guests. I mean, our guests just get better and better. I mean, I'm, I've got more guests lined up. It could be amazing as well. 
So please, please listen in. Of course, if you want to be a guest as well, I'm always welcoming new people onto the show. And if you've got any comments or suggestions, please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehaven.co.uk. If you've got any ideas on how we can improve, I'd love to hear them. And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood, and it's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye.